In this episode of Startups to the Rest of Us, Craig Hewitt returns to the show to answer listener questions about productized services, podcasting, and more. This is Startups to the Rest of Us, episode 466. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Craig Hewitt, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome back to the show. As you know, on this show, we value building real businesses with real customers who pay us real money. We value the freedom to work on projects that are interesting to us. We value the purpose that it brings us to start our own endeavors and to have equity and ownership. And we value relationships, whether that's relationships with our family or our friends. We don't decimate our personal life for the gain of our company. We are ambitious founders, but we're not willing to sacrifice our life or our health to get where we want to go. We know that starting a company is hard. More than half of being a startup founder is managing your own psychology. And joining me again today is guest Craig Hewitt. He's the founder of Castos. I did an interview with him a few episodes ago, and I did a call out for questions that folks had for him about his experience, about his his interview. And I wanted to bring him back on the show. And it's something I want to start doing, assuming there's enough, you know, enough demand for it. If you didn't hear that interview, Craig has grown Castos to six team members, including himself. They are a member of the inaugural Tiny Seed Batch, and Craig is is really crushing it with Castos, his podcast hosting platform. But before we dive into that, I wanted to give some special thanks to Kenneth Kaw for his epic enterprise sales tips. He sent an email to me after David Heller's Hot Seat episode where we dug into David's enterprise sales issues with things taking too long. And, and Kenneth Kaw, it's K-H-A-W, obviously has, has you know, tons of credentials uh, around being an enterprise, in enterprise sales for 12 years. And he had some tips for David, including screenshots, a long write-up, talking about summarizing a quote in one page, providing variations of a quote, figuring out what the get over the line number is for negotiating. You know, he, he really dug into it. So it was super cool and super appreciated. And David's response was, wow, he really spent a lot of time on this. So it was much appreciated that the community can give back to, you know, someone like David who is, uh, who's pushing forward and trying to solve problems. It's always great when we can share our expertise with one another. And lastly, another reminder that Tiny Seed applications for our second batch open on November 1st. For those who don't know, I run Tiny Seed. It's the first startup accelerator designed for bootstrappers, and we fund companies in batches for a year-long remote accelerator. If you're interested, head over to tinyseed.com, enter your email there, and we will notify you when the application's available. And with that, let's dig into some listener questions with Craig Hewitt. Craig, thanks so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rob. I'm excited to dig into some questions today. We got a few questions that were asked directly to you, and then there's a few more general mailbag questions. So the first question came from Matt Stainer, and he said, why Tiny Seed? Going into it, what were you hoping to get out of it? Now that you've been in a while, how's it going? I ask because as I understand it, Tiny Seed is focused on helping founders, and in quotes, move from nights and weekends to full-time focus. Essentially quit the day job and go all in on your startup. And yet it sounds like you are already full-time on Castos with six employees. So I'm curious what drew you to Tiny Seed. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, no, this is a really good question. And this was a question I asked myself a lot uh, and had a lot of real kind of heart-to-hearts with with my wife. And even with 
with, you know, other people kind of in the space that I, I know and trust and respect. And and really, Matt, what it came down to is the terms for Tiny Seed are are really, really favorable for founders who want to run a business for a long time, just as a a high growth, I'll say lifestyle business, but but not on the VC track, but want to accelerate the growth of their business past what they can do by pure bootstrapping. So if it's like you mentioned, some of the the copy on the website might be, you know, let you quit your nights and weekends and focus on this full time. That would obviously accelerate the growth of the business. But for us, we had, you know, pretty solid beginning of product market fit when we applied. And I thought that that joining Tiny Seed both for the mentorship and for the funding would allow us to accelerate that. And Rob, what are we, four or five months into it now? I, I think it definitely has. We're growing faster than we were before. And the business is absolutely a better business now than it was you know, six months ago. So I think what drew me to it was uh, the people behind it and the opportunities that it would allow for kind of me professionally and personally to develop, but also to, to kind of put Castos on, on the map and give us access to resources, both financially and mentors and network that, that I don't have access to myself and, and really at a pretty reasonable cost. I don't say it's a cheap cost because it's not, but, you know, giving up a piece of your company, uh, is always kind of a, a big decision and a really super personal one. But, but I think that the trade-off is, is really reasonable in this respect. Yeah, I remember you thought a lot about it, and you and I had a number of conversations, as I did with most of the you know most of the founders that that wound up making it into the batch. There was conversations about us kind of feeling people out, and then there was them feeling us out, you know, and saying, "What is this going to be like?" We have an interest. We had an interesting, almost conundrum of we were a startup too, and this was our first batch, and I think it will be much much easier. I expect it to be much easier with the second batch because we do have. It's just more proven, you know, we have more product market fit now. And so, you know, there were, there were a lot of conversations then. The other interesting thing is we did start out with the kind of thesis of, I think we'll fund a lot of founders who will move from nights and weekends to full time. And if I recall correctly, out of, we funded 10 companies and I think two of them and maybe three went from, had a day job and, and went full time. Everyone else was already working on it. So even that hypothesis we had is you know, not entirely accurate. Now, one of them has a small, you know, software product that essentially provides him with a full-time income. So he didn't need to to have a day job. And, you know, another founding team moved to a cheaper place. They did geo-arbitrage, right? So they moved from the U.S. somewhere much cheaper. And that allowed them to live full-time, even though they didn't have like a U.S. full-time income coming out. So there were, there were kind of exception-ish things. But overall, I mean, that's something I'm already, if we haven't already updated on the website, I think we need to, you know, in terms of you figure out really, you know, who your I think your your best kind of prospects or your you know the people who can use this the most and message to them. I'm curious, you know, you said your company has uh, Castos is growing and it's it's absolutely in a better position today than it was when it when it joined Tiny Seed. And I haven't talked, you know, honestly, I haven't talked a lot about Tiny Seed on the podcast because I I never want the podcast to feel like a sales pitch for anything I'm doing, right? I would talk about my journey building Hittail or, or a journey doing microconf or journey of drip, but I, I try really hard to keep that balance of I'm not just sitting here pitching what I'm doing. And so I probably need, I've actually had a couple of people ask me to bring someone on to interview me about what's going on, not to necessarily talk about Tiny Seed, but what's going on with me, 
you know, my founder's journey. And so I, I think that could be interesting, but all that said, so I haven't talked a ton about it, but I'm, I'm curious, like you've now been in for, yeah, almost, I guess it's about four months at this point. So it's a third of the accelerator and without putting you on the spot, like, is it what you expected in terms of the benefits? I mean, you talk, obviously there was money and then there's the mentorship and the, our list of mentors, I think is, is pretty solid. And then there's, you know, the office hours themselves, right. Of, of hanging out, or I guess the kind of the mastermind, the community of it, right. Of being in Slack and being on the weekly calls and then the in-person events and the, even the network, right. Even beyond the mentors, if you say, Hey, I need an intro to somebody, you know, my network essentially is and my network and, and a lot of the net mentors networks are at your disposal. So has it been what you expected? And, and do you feel like it's contributed to your success just over the past, you know, four or five months? Yeah. So the, the, the money is, is really nice, honestly. And I think like a lot of people that take money that have a bootstrapper mindset, you know, Josh from Bear Metrics talks about this a lot that they haven't spent a lot of the money they took and we haven't either. You know, we use it as kind of a, a cushion. It's, it's a big cushion <laughs> for me, but we're not burning hardly any money right now. And we've, we've hired a full-time person and a half uh, since, since joining Tiny Seed. So that's been really nice and it makes me feel good to have a lot of reserves, you know, the business is really sound at this point. And that's cool. And I think that comes through in everything we do, because we're able to take a longer term approach to building the business and features and marketing approaches and things like that, that we don't have to worry about, you know, making payroll next month or next week, because we we have money in the bank to where if, if things went sideways, we'd be good for a while. So that's, that's kind of how we are using the money. But the best part really is that is the network. And the, and the community. So the, the difference being the, the network is with the mentors and the mentors networks, because we definitely have gone to like second and third layer with, with some of the mentors that I've talked to. And they said, hey, if you want to talk to this person, I can intro you over here. I probably have two or three calls a week with either you and Einar or a mentor or a mentor's friend or a connection that I've made somewhere like that. And then we all, the 10 companies are in Slack all the time sharing stories and we have a fail whale channel. So yeah, sharing our, our successes and our learning opportunities. And that's really great because yeah, we're a lot of us are solo founders. There's one kind of founding, I guess there's two founding teams in the cohort, but yeah, I mean, it gets, it gets lonely sometimes out here and especially to have people that are doing exactly the same thing that you're doing. We're all building SaaS apps that are less than, you know, whatever, 50 grand a month. We're all in the same boat pretty much, right? So it's a really homogenous group. And that's what makes a lot of the discussions really interesting amongst the the founding teams. So I, I think that that's been the biggest surprise though, is that the the value of the network of mentors and the support of the other companies and, and the founders has been awesome. And like, I know we've kind of like numbered the Tiny Seed 2019 Slack channel that's just for us, because I know there'll be like a Tiny Seed 2020 and 2021 and stuff, but I still will definitely be active in our little part of in our channel within the group, just with, you know, us and the other 11 people, because these are like really valuable relationships. Awesome. That's what I would hope to hear from anyone who, you know, does does become part of the batch. So Thanks for the question, Matt. I appreciate that. I hope uh, context was helpful. Our next question is from Meryl Johnston. She is the founder of Bean Ninjas, which is a, it's pretty well-known productized accounting service. And I believe they focus on zero, but they're, they're pretty well-known. They've sponsored a lot of conferences. And uh, Meryl is actually 
one of the Tiny Seed mentors. And she says, hi, Rob, I think it's a great idea to get Craig back on for another episode to answer questions from the listeners. Meryl sent a voicemail, so let's dive into that now. Hi, Robin Craig. It's Meryl Johnston here from B Ninjas, and I've got a question for you both. Cool concept, by the way. I like the idea of having an interview and then giving listeners the opportunity to ask follow-up questions, which you then answer in another podcast. So, Rob, my understanding is that you started with consulting before you transitioned to products and then software, and that, Craig, you used a productized service business model to then leverage your network and skills and maybe your branding as well to then go into software. My transition was also from, I went from consulting, I did that for nine months and then created a productized service. And then this year we've been moving into digital products. So based on my own experience, I think there is value in building your skill set as an entrepreneur while running a service business. And in my experience, it was a faster way to, leave a job and transition to working full-time in a business than if I had created products from day one. So my question to you both is if you were starting from scratch again and you were transitioning from a job to running a business and you didn't yet have much business experience, you didn't have much of a network and you didn't have a lot of capital behind you, what kind of business would you start? And so Rob, would it be consulting and and Craig, would it be a productized service? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Thanks for that, Merrill. What do you think, Craig? Have you thought about this? Yeah, I have pretty strong feelings about this. I, I think uh, a productized service model or, or even consulting is a fantastic way to, to transition out of a day job into running your own business. And, and the reason is, as opposed to software, where there's a ton of time and financial overhead that you need before you can start making any money. You can put up a WordPress site with WooCommerce or Gravity Forms or whatever and start making money literally today, right? Justin McGill launched the first version of LeadFuse in like this 24-hour challenge to himself. We launched Podcast Motor in, you know, maybe a week. And it was because it was like my third time ever putting up a WordPress site. And we were doing 10 grand a month within a couple of months. And you know, compare that to what a SaaS founder has to do to get to 10,000 a month. It's like, you know, moving planets to, to get to that kind of MRR for, for SaaS, especially the first time. So I think that if someone has a skill set or a passion and you can create a productized service around it, you absolutely should do that if that's the way you want to get, if your goal is to get out of a day job and into this world. But I think Meryl really nailed it on the head when she said leverage. Because that's how I view what we're doing now. Rob, you probably see it from consulting to your first software products to what you're doing now is like another form of leverage. And like I just see that a unit of work I do now in Castos is worth a lot more to the value of the entity than a unit of work that I do into to podcast motor, which is our productized service. And I think it's just because, you know, creating a piece of software and, and a team that supports that is is more scalable, probably has better margins, and in some ways is easier to, to run at like a higher level. But yeah, I think it's a fantastic way to start. And I, I think that Merrill, as like Merrill's getting to, getting into a digital product or software product 
is really great because they're more complicated. And if you've learned some of the things like marketing and project management and customer service through a product-based service, then you have a really good chance of being successful in software. Yeah. And, and for me, I, I don't honestly know. I mean, I have an inclination of what I would do. I, I think if someone came to me for blanket advice and said, look, I'm at a day job and I want to work for myself, I would say, like, is your ultimate goal, because there's, there's the Robert Kiyosaki levels, right, of, I'm not a huge Rich Dad Poor Dad fan, but I do like this one paradigm he has where it's like, you're employed for someone else, then you're self-employed, which typically is like consulting, where you still, it's dollars for hours, then you're an entrepreneur, which is where other people work for you, and as you said, it's, it's that moment of leverage when you have a whole team, and then it's investor, where you're no longer running the day-to-day, and you're putting money into other businesses. So I would first decide, do you just want to work for yourself in this terms of self-employed or do you want to go as far as to be the entrepreneur and let's just say have a product business in this context and then kind of go from there. But for me, like I wish if I could go back, I wished that I could have kept a day job and had it not just drive me up the wall. Like I hated my day jobs. I really, really despised working in a cubicle and I liked some of my coworkers and I didn't like others and I didn't like that I couldn't choose who to work with and I didn't like that a bunch of the policies seemed just dumb and I didn't like that we were, had, were forced to write really crappy code a lot of the time and then when it failed, that like our, the sales guy, our CEO was a sales guy and he would go out and sell something and be like, hey, we have to ship this in six weeks and we're like, yeah, that's like four months of effort and he's like, I don't care, get it done. So then we go get it done and then the shit would break. Because we wrote shitty code and then he'd come down on it. And I was like, this is dumb. This is like dumb. You know, why, why isn't someone smarter here? And so that was, seemed to just be an ongoing thing. But had I been a little more chill or been able to deal a little better with it or just found jobs that weren't like that, because there are certainly jobs that exist, you know, and there are people that are calmer and better. I, I like to say I'm unemployable, right? It's like, I just am not going to be a good employee. But if someone is like, look, I'm at my day job. I'm making 125K, 150K as a salesperson or as a developer and, and I work 40 hours a week and I don't think about it when I get home and it doesn't suck the life out of me. I would say, keep doing that and launch something on the side. And maybe your first step is consulting. Maybe it is productized consulting like you did, Craig, and like Meryl's done. But maybe it's a stair-step approach. You know, maybe it's that WordPress plugin or it's you write an ebook, or maybe it's a, a Shopify add-on or, you know, a one, any one-time sale product. And I definitely went the consulting route because I wanted to get, I wanted to be out of a day job in a hurry. And I thought that consulting, to be honest, was the end goal for me originally. I thought that would fix all my woes. And, you know, I got out billing a hundred bucks an hour, 125 an hour. I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. I make more money than I've ever had. And then I didn't dislike it as much as I disliked salaried employment for sure, but it definitely got old after a couple of years. And for me, it was about, I wasn't building anything that would last there was no permanence to it. I didn't build anything that I owned. I had no equity. And my consulting firm, quote unquote, was never sellable. And I thought to myself, am I going to do this for 20 years? And that didn't appeal to me. And it's hard to, when you're make, doing consulting and you're addicted to the cash, the incoming cash, it's really hard to justify like I could work another hour. Like I used to be booked 60 hours a week, I would say. I didn't work that much, but I could have worked that much. So I would look at like, all right, it is Saturday afternoon and I could put in three hours and I could make like $375 or I could work on this beach towel website that is doing $200 a month. It was a very hard transition. So for me, going from consulting to products was actually harder than if I had just kept the day job because at the day job, I wouldn't have had that extra motivation to work more on it. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. And I think that's where consulting and productized services differ, right? Because I've been able to take, and you hear like Brian Castle talk about this uh, with audience ops, you're able to take a productized service that has a team that supports it and systems and processes and documentation to, I don't say run itself because nothing runs itself, but I spend an hour a day on podcast motor right now, maybe two on a bad day or whatever, a good day. And yeah, I mean, it's a solid mid six figure business. You could never do that with consulting because you're directly trading dollars for hours or hours for dollars. So I, I think that's the difference. But the one thing, you know, I, I agree with what you said, Rob, that like the most high leverage thing you might be able to do is keep your day job. One, because you can just save a bunch of money maybe and go buy your way into freedom, right? You can go buy an app or you can get experience in something that will then allow you to be successful when you do go out on your own. So I had a sales background before and it's like hugely beneficial for me now like in the business world to, to know how to sell stuff. So if you have the opportunity to get into a sales or marketing role where you can learn that side of, of business and of the world, I think that might set you up for success I don't want to say more, but but it will definitely give you a leg up versus just going out and flailing around and figuring it out on your own if you're able to to kind of hold down that day job. Yep. I think that if you can learn skill sets either at the day job or as you're consulting or productized consulting, if you can learn skill sets there that add to your product tool belt, you know, your product marketing, your product sales, your product development, whatever that's a big win. And that's something that I found, you know, again, when I, I was solo consulting, I had one to three clients at any one time. My marketing was my blog. I invoiced using Excel spreadsheets. Like it was very stripped down and I didn't have to write copy. I didn't learn marketing. I didn't learn AdWords. I didn't learn any of that from consulting. And so when I look back on my experience, if I have any regrets, it's that my salary job, I learned to code for sure or got better at it because I was already coding before that. And that obviously helped me with products. And then eventually you top out and you only get, you know, you're working on just different problems than, than you would work on if you had a little SaaS website or whatever. With When I transitioned to consulting, I don't feel like I really learned much that later helped me with that translated into kind of supporting a product and building a product. Whereas productized services... Uh, it sounds like to me from what you've said and just what I observed that there's a lot more parallels between that and say SaaS. Would you agree with that? Yeah. No, I mean, every, everything about it is the same except for the software, right? It's it's marketing, it's customer service, it's processes and deliverables. And then SaaS adds on project management of development teams and testing and technology and stuff like that. Yep. So it really is a nice proxy for that. It's not just a revenue stream. And I mean, you know, I already mentioned it uh, in the intro, but if, if you haven't already heard Craig's story, if you go back to episode 459, he tells this story of how he had a day job, launched Podcast Motor, which is his productized service, and then leveraged all that, you know, left the day job and then leveraged that into essentially getting a WordPress plugin and, and doing Castos. And that path, I mean, the, not only did it provide revenue, but it provided that, that whole skill set and the learning curve that you didn't have to do while you're communicating with developers and designers and building a product and supporting a product and, you know, doing all that stuff. Well, thanks again for the question, Merrill. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Kane about how to run a beta. And he references uh, an episode from 2012 where Mike and I talked about running a beta. And he said he'd love to hear a little more on how to select beta users and figure out beta phases. And then he references a similar discussion happened on Matt Wensing's podcast, which is called Out of Beta, 
not coincidentally, uh, which made me think to look and see what you guys had on the subject. So Craig, I'm, I'm sure you've had beta, I know that you've had beta periods with Castos. Talk about that. Uh, we don't. No, we don't have any uh, beta testers or beta functionality in the app. Really? Have you never, like, were you in, were you in beta early on or did you just never have a beta? No, we just launched. For, I guess to, def- to define it, like, so people know, typically, so I don't call it beta, I typically call it early access. Beta implies that it's a buggy product and it's pre-launch. It's a preview that you can use, but beware of the bugs. And typically we might nuke the data. I mean, there's different agreements and such. And Google's famous for having Gmail and beta for five years or something. But betas are, A, not required, and B, these days I would like to not have a buggy product. And when we did drip, we did early access and we tried to make sure there was minimal, minimal bugs. It wasn't about testing. It was more about customer development, you know, and user experience or fun rather than, oh, they clicked on a link and something crashed. So with that said, I had, I had assumed wrongly, obviously that, that you had run a beta with Castus in the early days. So you just, you launched straight away. Yeah. We just dove head first. I also think there's two two parts to beta, right? One is before you launch, and then the other is beta testing or beta releasing features after you've launched. So you develop a new feature, you release it to a small cohort of your total user base to let them test it before you go throw it out to the whole world. And we very much would like to do the latter now because we have, you know, whatever, thousands of users, and we don't want to release something to everybody that could be buggy or whatever. We have extensive unit tests and staging environments, and we have testers that run through everything before it goes out the door. But I would still like to take the time to develop, you know, feature flags or beta flags for certain users. I think that's, if you have an established product, is super valuable because you can kind of pick, you know, the people that have been around for a long time, and you know they really care about you and your product and are going to be there even if you ship something that isn't the best experience the first time. And those are the perfect beta testers. They're the people that love what you do, kind of know what, no matter what, but, but have a lot, give, will give you a lot of latitude. If you ship a feature that that's in beta, that might be a little rough around the edges. Um, that's, that's how I would select those people. And, and you probably know who they are. They've been around for a long time. Your exchanges with them and support are really positive. They refer other people over to you. Those are the kind of characteristics of, of what I would consider like a good beta user to be. And they're kind of inquisitive, natural learning people. Uh, so they'll go poke around and, and give you constructive feedback without being overly critical in a not productive way. So for when it comes to beta, that's the only place I really see like a good use for beta. Um, we launched Castos and just launched it. And um, <laughs> it was not pretty, but it worked. But But I think we only did it because... We tested the hell out of it in staging and had confidence that like the the product and the market had good alignment because there were other people doing similar things. So it's not like we were creating a whole new product segment or something like that. So that's why we kind of just launched it. And how did that go? How were the results? Because you, you kind of referenced it was not pretty. Oh, we had some technical issues with like deployment, but uh, I mean, that's... That, I think that just happens sometimes. And we've learned and we do things smarter and better now, but that would have happened even if we would have released it as a beta, I think. We would have had these issues. But I, I think people might get hung up on this a little bit. And there's a lot of discussion around this. Like, when is a launch really a launch? And when it, when do you come out of beta? And what does that mean? I think it's I think it's kind of fuzzy, to, to be honest with you. And, and maybe, I don't know, not like super important, like how, how and where you draw those lines. You know, you get the thing out there, have some people use it, make sure it's not going to break the world, and then release it and start start getting real new, fresh 
customers or trial users so you can see so you can see unbiased people using your app because I think that's the real thing that that you want to get to is like how does this person that I don't know and won't give me that extra leeway how are they interacting with with what I built because that's the real acid test how did you guys rob how did you guys do like beta both like beta period when you were launching drip and then did you beta release features like to certain users yeah, we did. So what we did, and this is what I would do today. So the fact that I'm referring back to Drip doesn't change change any of that. This is still the approach I would take. So the first, let's say, 10 or 15 customers we let in that weren't paying yet, they were just on an unlimited free trial. And I said, look, once you start really using this and getting value out of it, then you pay and I'm just going to monitor it. So I would just boomerang emails back to me every two to three weeks, checking on their account, touch base with them. And it was a very manual process. Those people knew we were building something new. And we said, look, we don't expect it to be buggy. I mean, we test the crap out of this stuff, but there is a possibility of bugs, but we, we don't expect any. The people were, they were early adopters, obviously. And, and the way we handpicked those people was I looked at people, a lot of them actually either had a dire need for it or they were folks who ran other SaaS apps. And the reason I did that is because I knew that they would give helpful, constructive feedback from a product-minded perspective. And I had the luxury of folks on the launch list who, when they gave their their email, I could tell that they ran, you know, another SaaS app. And again, when you have a layperson, they can know a problem that they have, but it's often, they'll often try to propose a solution and that's not a good solution for you to build into your product. And having folks like, you know, Ruben Gomez from BidSketch, Jeff Epstein from Ambassador, Brennan Dunn, for, then from, from PlanScope, but now with Right Message, you know, it was folks who had, had pretty good knowledge of that. And then there were some folks that were in e-commerce and there was a couple bloggers, and, but they were all folks who had, who I think had good ideas. And as you said, didn't have a bunch of noise. You know, that was, that's the struggle you run into is if you get 15 or 20 people in and they're all in different, like diverse they have diverse goals and you get a blogger and then you get a photographer and then you get a, someone running e-com and then you get SaaS. They'll have just wildly different requests for you and that starts getting complicated. It starts making it hard to figure out, you know, what to do next. And then really our beta, I'd say, truly ran, again, it was called early access, but really ran from about July to November. It was like five months long. The reason we did that is we had this big launch list and we were still doing customer development. We hadn't even proven that we'd build something people were going to pay for, right? We weren't building, like podcast hosting existed and you knew that if you built a platform, customers would pay you for it, right? You just needed a, a channel. That's how I would I would see Castos. Whereas with Drip, we were trying to build something new and I didn't know if we sent an email to the 3,500 person launch list, if everyone would just show up and leave. And so we were pretty cautious uh, about it. We let in, then we just did 300 people at a time every couple of weeks, let them in, built some features. It, the app was quite stable during that time. I think we only had one bug that like missent email, you know, like double sended to a group or something, which is a, which is a big deal. I mean, that sucks when you're running an ESP to, to oversend or to miss a schedule. You know, if someone wants it to send at 11 a.m. and it sends three hours later, that's a problem, right? More so than some apps, you have the leeway of, of it not being mission critical, but an ESP can be that. So yeah, we handled it. I mean, it could have been more compressed for sure. I think that also comes back to the, uh, Derek and I worked 40 hour weeks. And if we had worked 70-hour weeks, yeah, we probably could have got it done in two months. But that was a lifestyle choice to not, that wasn't the time when I was going to work long hours. So um, that's not in, totally on topic with betas, but that is how how we kind of ran it. And then I think to, to your other point, you said, do you beta test features? And the answer is yes. We had feature flags from the start where we could just ship something. And then, you know, I'm trying to think like a split testing or a... Um, 
I mean, even automations and such. And it was just a checkbox in the admin panel. We would open it up for three or four early access folks, send them an email. Hey, you have this, check it out. You want to test it, get feedback, iterate quickly, and then slowly either release it to a few more people if we were still in doubt, or at that point, then we'd actually launch the feature to the whole, to the whole audience. Do you guys do that as well? Are you able to, to like feature gate to specific users? Yeah, we're able to to do that to really just the admins. So it's myself and our lead developer, basically, both who have podcasts. So we're able to to run stuff on our podcasts. And I guess we we, we definitely have beta versions of the plugin. So we we manage a, a WordPress plugin called Seriously Simple Podcasting that that integrates with Castos, and we absolutely run beta versions of that on our live sites and on test sites all the time. And I think that's more important because not like a SaaS app where you can ship it. And then if it's not exactly right, just fix it and, and push new code and everybody's happy. But with a WordPress plugin, if you ship a bad plugin, people's sites can break or their podcasts can go down or whatever. So we're ultra conservative with what we ship there. And so we test beta versions of the plugin for weeks sometimes just on our live sites, make sure everything's cool. So that's, you know, that's another thing to, to consider. So if you have a Shopify app or a WordPress plugin or something like that, running a proper beta program there, I think is are important for different reasons than a SaaS app where, yeah, you you know, push it. If it's not exactly right, just fix it and push it again. And that's, <laughs> that's what we do a lot of times and it works. So thanks for the question, Kane. I hope that was helpful. We will answer one more question. And this one is about podcast sponsorships. And he, he asked it for startups for the rest of us, but it's kind of cool that you're on the show because you have your own podcast. And he says, I'm a longtime listener of your podcast and I've followed your startup journeys over the years. I myself have worked for several VC-backed startups until about 10 years ago when I got interested in bootstrap companies and decided to be a marketing consultant for non-VC-backed companies. I was recently looking at podcast sponsorship opportunities and I read your FAQ that you're not interested in sponsors. So I thought I'd reach out more out of curiosity why you decided to not have ads. I assume doing a podcast is a time-consuming effort. And while not all endeavors need to be money-making, I'm curious what the motivation is for why you do the podcast. I figure you want to help out other entrepreneurs, but is that it? And that's from praising. So Craig, you run a podcast and you don't take sponsors. Why is that? Yeah, so I think, you know, we coach a lot of our, our clients, particularly on the podcast motor side of things, on the, the why you do a podcast so I think around monetizing a podcast, there's two distinct kind of routes you can take. One is directly monetizing your podcast, which is like ads, or now kind of becoming more popular is selling like premium subscriptions. So you can charge five or 10 bucks a month for access to limited content or something like that. And that's directly monetizing your podcast. The other way that I would argue in a lot in the vast majority of situations is more lucrative and maybe easier is to kind of indirectly monetize your podcast with products or services or conferences or membership sites, which is what you guys do. And most all of our customers at Podcast Motor, which are a lot of startups and successful entrepreneurs that everyone that listens to this podcast has heard of, that's what they do. We have very, very, very few people who monetize their podcasts just through advertising or through you know this kind of premium subscription memberships that are, that are becoming popular now. And I think the, the reason is, is you have to have enormous download volume to, to make good money through sponsorships. And I know you guys have a really successful podcast, Rob, but you wouldn't make nearly the money that you might through other things that you can do with, 
you know, having a whole bunch of people that are interested in what you're doing. And then you have a conference or a, you know, a membership site that, that people can become a part of if they like what they hear on the podcast. And that's a, that's a really natural kind of way to use content marketing and podcasting is, is a form of content marketing. And so that's, that's what we really like to see and is more successful and easier for, for people to, to do. And so I think that's why you don't see a lot of ads in podcasts, especially like in our space. Yeah, I would second that. I think that's a, a good way to think about it. Mike and I toyed around with sponsorships. I mean, it, some listeners might recall us making an announcement, I don't know, nine months or a year ago and saying, hey, we're thinking about this if you want to sponsor email in. And we just never made it that far. We got a few emails. And to be honest, managing a sponsorship program is it's quite a lot of work. You know, it's, it's enterprise sales in a way. And you're going to have many conversations, it's going to be lead times, and then you're going to need to follow up an invoice and get paid. And then you need to work on ad copy because typically the first, most people don't know how to advertise on podcasts and typically the first ad copy you get is not very good. So then you're rewriting that. So it's, it's not as if you're cashing a check for free. You know, it is a, an amount of effort and it is another side job for two software entrepreneurs who also run multiple conferences and also have a podcast and also write books. You know, it's just one more thing to tack on. And it's always been like, how much value, you know, will this actually provide? And so that's it. I would never say never. Like, might we have sponsorships someday? Maybe. You know, I don't, I'm not opposed to them. I just want them to be a fit and I want it to be the, you know, the right choice both for us and for the audience. And I think to your point about monetizing indirectly, you know, when we started the podcast, I remember we had the Micropreneur Academy already and it, we did view it. I remember I viewed it as a way to not only build more credibility, um, but also have a more personal connection to the audience that was that I was already building on the blog. And to be honest, I really did want to build a community of folks like us because I knew like five people who were doing what we were doing in 2009 when I started writing my book. You know, it was like, I could list them on one hand of like, yeah, these are the solo software entrepreneurs. And every time I would hear about one, I'm like, this is, what? Who's, di- this is just crazy. There are th- that many people. And then, as the blog started going and after I published my book and then more people started coming out of the woodwork, like the podcast, I really viewed it as an avenue to just get more of us together. And then of course in 2011, it was finally like, I think we might be able to actually get together in a room, you know, and our delusions of grandeur of 200 people in a room quickly turned into, uh Oh, how are we going to sell enough tickets to fill this, you know, 105 seats? I think the first microconf wound up being 105 and I had to discount some tickets late there, but all of that, I think, became more important than making a couple grand a month. I don't know what we'd make if we monetize the podcast, but I just think that other stuff is more important. And the platform, I think I don't do it to directly monetize. I think I've just never thought of it that way. I do it for all of these other things. And it's to be, it's to continue to be a voice in the community, but also to continue making sure that the, this community of, of you know, bootstrappers and, and independent startups and indie funded startups that... I don't know that this keeps this thing keeps moving forward because I believe in it a lot. Like I'm, I'm play long ball, and I, I believe we have decades and decades of growth, and this is the new the new frontier. You know, like 99 of of companies don't need venture funding, and that's us. So let's you know let's let's band together. And I don't know, I don't want to get grandiose and act, act like that. you know that's what I thought from day one because it wasn't that deliberate. But that's that's where I see it now, and that's why I'm spending my focus instead of doing enterprise sales and asking for invoices and rewriting ad copy. I'm focusing on the microconfs and the, you know the tiny seed and the blogging and, and all the other stuff to try to try to push that forward. Yeah, it's the leverage we talked about from Merrill's question, right? That the podcast is your probably biggest form of reach, 
And you're able to do a lot of things now with it that you couldn't ever do just by making some ad money. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, that's a good question. Thanks for sending it in praising. Craig, thanks again. That was super fun. As your first first Q&A episode, how did that feel? It was great. Yeah, a lot of fun, really interesting questions. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a blast. Absolutely. So if folks want to know what you're up to, they can head to castos.com for your podcast hosting services and the Craig Hewitt on Twitter. Is that right? That's it. Yep. Awesome. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Rob. And if you have a question for the show, whether it's myself or a guest, leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email us an MP3 or an Aug Vorbis or attach a Dropbox link or even just write your question out in text old school style questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. As you know, our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. You can subscribe to us by searching for startups in pretty much any of the podcast players. And visit startupsfortherestofus.com to see our cool, still relatively new website, to find a transcript of each episode, and frankly, to sign up for the email list. Um, I've been emailing just a little bit more, but not too much. And I, I think it's it's good to stay in touch with the community. So I'd love it if you would uh, go to startupsfortherestofus.com any of your email. And we promise to only send you stuff that's on topic and relevant for you as a startup founder. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.